So I recently read James McBride's book, The Good Lord Bird. If you're wondering, the title is in reference to the ivory-billed woodpecker, now extinct, of course, but in the telling of this story, when people, when characters see it, it's so magnificent and grand, they say, good Lord. It's the good Lord bird. <laughs> There's much more to that story in the good Lord piece, of course. You'll have to read the book to get to that. The good, what I will tell you, though, is the good Lord bird is historical fiction and is told from the point of view of a diminutive young adult whom the abolitionist John Brown abducts in this brawl in Kansas, following a brawl. The young man named Henry Shackelford is a 12-year-old light-skinned Kansas slave and is mistaken, because of what he's wearing that day, to be a woman by John Brown. He is given the nickname Little Onion, or simply Onion. Onion travels with John Brown in his abolitionist army in this historical fiction, presenting as a young woman the entire story. And in that story, Onion is even part of the events surrounding the raid on Harper's Ferry. Onion, or Henrietta, or his real name is Henry, but it's confused, they get confused and think it's Henrietta. So Onion, or Henrietta, as he is sometimes called, is a keen narrator, giving voice to his experience as a young woman, He's a young boy, but talking about what it feels like to be a young woman, and a voice as a former slave. At one point, Onion comments, I'd gotten used to living a lie, being a girl, because being a Negro's a lie anyway. Nobody sees the real you. Nobody knows who you are inside. You just judge on what you are on the outside. You are just a Negro to the world. This book offered yet another perspective for me on this racial justice journey we've begun as a church. And I loved in the story how many of the characters, how many of the characters were like onions. I loved the character Onion, but then these other characters with layers and layers of complexity around them, layers around gender identity. Is Onion a boy or a girl and how is he treated based on how people perceive him. Layers around John Brown and his motives. Was he a prophet or was he just a crazy religious fanatic or something else entirely? I love this book and these characters because like so many of us, they had layers, just like we do. Layers and layers of complexity. Layers which hold the contradictions and the paradoxes of our lives. Layers which hold the secrets and the yearnings layers which hold the rich fullness of our lives. Layers which always lead to another layer. So this morning, I want to peel back a layer on the onion, if you will, that is our shared worship life, that is the story we tell here, Sunday after Sunday in this space. I want to pull back a layer on that onion. Two weeks ago, during our flower communion service, many of you will remember, I preached a short little homily. I welcomed the newest members, and in that homily, I talked about little bits and pieces of our Unitarian and Universalist history throughout the centuries. One of the stories I lifted up was the story of Theodore Parker, Unitarian Theodore Parker, who lived in Boston, who lived from 1810 to 1860, and who wrote many of his sermons with a pistol on his desk to protect these free slaves who were in danger of being caught by slave catchers. He protected them in his home. The story is true and well documented, but it's only one layer of the story 
about Theodore Parker. There are many other layers. It's true that Theodore Parker was a fierce abolitionist. It's true that Parker was a social and religious reformer whose words and writings influenced Abraham Lincoln, a government of the people, by the people, for the people. Martin Luther King and the arc of the universe bends towards justice, influenced those men and many other men and women. It's true that Parker believed in human freedom and that belief ran through his family like a strong river. It was Parker's grandfather, some of you may know, who commanded the Minutemen on Lexington Green. It was his grandfather who said, don't fire unless fired upon, but if they want to have a war, let it begin here. It's true that Parker detested slavery. And according to Edward Renahan Jr., author of this book, The Secret Six, Parker's argument with slavery was that as an institution, it flew in the face of what he considered to be one of the most sacred documents ever penned, the Declaration of Independence. In his speeches on abolition, Parker never oversimplified the complex problem of slavery. He refused to label it a southern crime. Instead, he described slavery as the great national sin. Parker criticized not only southern planters, but also northern individuals and institutions that profited from the system. As author Dean Grodson points out, by the mid-1840s, Parker had declared opposition to the Boston elite. He had declared opposition to the Boston elite to be a religious duty for the middle class. But opposition to the Boston elite became an imperative during the controversy over the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 when Parker began talking about the death struggle between freedom and despotism in this country. Specifically, according to author Dean Grodzins, what prompted such talk was not the passage of the law by Congress in September of 1850, but the endorsement of it the previous spring by the Boston elite, many of whom were Unitarians. In 1850, while Theodore Parker was breaking the fugitive slave law by protecting a free slave and a congregant in his home, Ezra Stiles Gannett, a fellow Boston Unitarian minister, was calling for obedience to the fugitive slave law. Gannett claimed he did not agree with slavery, but that it was one's duty to follow the law. We should be moderate, he said. We should keep the social order undisrupted. It's also worth pointing out that one of Gannett's congregants was a man named George Tickner, who was the United States Commissioner of Boston charged with enforcing the Fugitive Slave Law. So you can imagine the challenge, the moral challenge of Gannett as he stood in his pulpit on Sundays and looked out there and saw the man responsible for enforcing the slave law. I imagine that must have shaped some of Gannett's perspective and public reflection on moderation and I'm against slavery, but we must respect the law. Parker was a fierce abolitionist, however. But if we peel back another layer on the onion, we see that Theodore Parker also had racist views, deeply racist views. As author, author Edward Renahan Jr. writes, like many other abolitionists, Parker was convinced that blacks, on the whole, were inferior to whites in general intellectual power. Parker had black friends, among them Frederick Douglass, whom he recognized as possessing superior minds and whom he considered exceptions to the rule of black inferiority. Even so, in, 18, in 1858, Parker wrote that he saw the lack of black aggression 
in their unwillingness to fight for their freedom as a failure of that race. Parker was publicly criticized for this comment. As author Dean Grodson's writes, Dr. John Rock, who was a physician and a lawyer, he was the first African-American to be admitted to practicing law in front of the Supreme Court. Dr. John Rock publicly responded to Theodore Parker saying, American slaves have not revolted only because the odds are overwhelmingly against them. Dr. John Rock dismissed Parker's critique of, of the lack of aggression and willing to fight, willingness to fight for freedom. And he said and predicted accurately that thousands of black troops would fight in the next war. And Frederick Douglass, who visited Parker's gravesite in Florence, Italy after his death and who deeply admired Parker, also critiqued Parker for his racist views on African Americans. Those things are also true. And of course, there's another layer. When Theodore Parker met the abolitionist John Brown in 1857, he gave a warm reception to him. In fact, Theodore Parker was, I would say, fascinated by John Brown. As Dean Grodson's writes, Brown, who was poor and rough and plain and Calvinist, a true Puritan, if you will, at least that's how Parker saw him, John Brown was the exact opposite of the Boston elite that Parker disliked so much the elite that were wealthy and sophisticated and in many cases, Unitarian. I know, we have an interesting history with the Boston Brahmin, the Boston elite who make up a large part of the Unitarian side of our family. Brown believed that he was God's tool on earth to end the sin of slavery. And unlike other abolitionists, John Brown really did see blacks and whites as equals. And he referred to blacks as mister and let them sit at the table with him wherever he was. And it's telling that almost 100 years later, when a reporter asked whether white people could join the organization of Afro-American unity, Malcolm X said, definitely not. If John Brown were still alive, though, we might accept him. <laughs> Another layer in this story is that Parker and Brown had in common the belief that violence against supporters of slavery was, under the circumstances, justified and necessary. John Brown, as many of you probably know, had killed five pro-slavery people in the bleeding Kansas battle. Brown had been thinking about a guerrilla war for a long time, about freeing slaves in Virginia and arming them and escaping into the mountains and moving south, freeing more and more slaves, inviting them to join his army. And he believed that that would end this unholy institution of slavery. Parker heard some of these thoughts and this thinking of John Brown and this commitment. And a year after Parker met Brown, Theodore Parker and five others, often called the Secret Six, all Northerners, five of them Unitarians, agreed to help fund John Brown, to send him money and weapons, and they began to work their networks, their abolitionist networks in their area. It's not clear to what extent the Secret Six knew the full details of John Brown's plan to attack Harper's Ferry, but it is clear that Parker supported using violence to defend freedom. Even as Parker supported the end of slavery, when we pull back yet another layer on this onion, we see that toward the end of his life, Parker wondered how it would all play out, all unfold. And in a private correspondence to a friend, he said this, 
An Anglo-Saxon with common sense does not like the Africanization of America. He wishes the superior race to multiply rather than the inferior. Parker was an abolitionist and a racist. On October 17, 1859, John Brown and his small ragtag army made up of family members and freedmen and other abolitionists funded by Theodore Parker and others took over the armory at Harper's Ferry, Virginia. Brown had hoped that Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and others, hundreds of others, would join him, but that did not happen. And by the morning of October 19th, many in his group had been killed, and the rest would soon be captured by forces commanded by Robert E. Lee. At John Brown's hanging on December 2nd, 1859, this is an amazing snapshot of what was to come. John Wilkes Booth was in the crowd. He had borrowed, stolen perhaps, a, a military uniform to be up close. And John Wilkes Booth later wrote in his journal of the unlimited, undeniable contempt with which he viewed the traitor and terrorizer. Professor Thomas J., later known as Stonewall Jackson of the Virginia Military Institute, wrote admiringly of Brown's apparent cheerfulness and unflinching firmness as he mounted the steps to be hung. The raid on Harper's Ferry didn't end slavery, but it exposed, it revealed the deep tensions and conflicts at the heart of the American experiment. The financial support of Parker and others enabled the raid to happen, and it was the spark that set off the Civil War. And so the question for us this morning is this, was Parker a prophet an abolitionist, a racist, a reformer? It depends on who you ask and how many layers of the onion you pull back. He was a man shaped by the culture and thinking of his time, and he was ahead of his time. Was John Brown a prophet, a visionary, a madman, a reformer? It depends on who you ask and how many layers you pull back. John Brown was a man shaped by his faith who believed he was doing God's will to end slavery. And the real question, church, what about us? What about this church and our Unitarian Universalist faith? Do we offer a prophetic voice, a voice for justice and love, while at the same time continuing to have racist practices and beliefs? depends on who you ask and how many layers of the onion we're willing to pull back. We too are a product of this time and this culture. And at this church, in this community grounded in hope, our religious journey is, our religious journey is to pull back the layers as many layers of the onion as we can so that we can see ourselves and our religious history and the history of this country with eyes wide open. What helps us do that? What helps us see more clearly and slowly bend the arc of justice than the universe toward justice? I think it starts with relationships 
Relationship by relationship, encounter by encounter. It happens in our circles when we listen deeply. It happens in our racial justice book discussions and learnings. It happens when we work on a habitat house next to a stranger or a congregant and listen and talk. It happens as we start to see more clearly the blind spots we move through this world with. When there are those around us that we trust deep enough that trust us, that can say, hey, I think you missed something here. And as we pull back the layers of the onion, as we pull back those layers of an onion, that is the central work I'm suggesting to you as a faith community, is to do that work as an individual and as a faith community, as we pull back those layers to see ourselves and our history and our religious history more clearly, the challenge, as Reverend Mark Morrison-Reed says, is to develop a culturally inclusive vision that is grand and hopeful enough to inspire, and a way of being, a way of being that is open and welcoming to all races and cultures, Asian, Native American, Hispanic, and those with roots in Africa. Reed goes on to say, as we build in the present for the future we dream of, the only reliable foundation is one that honestly acknowledges and grieves and celebrates the past, Otherwise, we'll remain captive to beliefs and behavior that have not served us very well. So this is our work, church. Together, may we peel back the layers, discovering the depths of our shared, beautiful, flawed humanity as we help justice and compassion and freedom continue to unfold in this world around us. May it be so. May it be so.